Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews and chapter number 7. The book of Hebrews and chapter number 7. We are marching forward through the book of Hebrews and it won't be too long till we're at the very end of it. We're probably towards the middle now and starting to wrap up some of the teachings that God has on the Lord Jesus Christ. And soon we're going to hit a section after we talk a little bit more about Jesus Christ talking about the better way and that's the way of faith. But as for now, we're taking some time to look at these things concerning Jesus Christ, and we find our way to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 7. The book of Hebrews and chapter number 7. If you wouldn't mind, let's look together, Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse number 1. The book of Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 1, the word of God says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, Without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, <clears throat> abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave t the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take the tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, um, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them receiveth tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. But and as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe and of which no man give attendance at the altar." 
For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of, <coughs> of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it is far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in which a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God, inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this was an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by the reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once, and when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have an infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that is repeated twice within this chapter, several times throughout the book of Hebrews, but twice in this chapter. Notice in verse number 17, where it refers to the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek. And then once again, it repeats it in the end of verse number 21, the order of Melchizedek. The order of of Melchizedek. And with the Lord's help, let's go and let's explore more about why this order of Melchizedek is so important. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. Thank you for the great privilege it is to have your word and that never changes, that reflects you because you never change. And thank you for that immutability that we studied this morning. And now as we apply it to Jesus Christ, our high priest, knowing that he never changes, knowing that because of that, he is a better priest than us men ever could be. And we're thankful for that. Help us to understand what you laid to see the wisdom of God. Help us to see what a great God that you are. As you had this all in mind and had it planned out even before uh, the tribe of Levi ever existed. Lord, 
Again, such a wonderful passage. I'm asking that you would just help me to be able to explain it in such a way that would be understandable. That you would be with my mind. You would be with my lips. That you would make it clear. And that you would give a hunger for folks to understand this even more for themselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now remember, as we're going through the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a New Testament commentary on the Old Testament filtered through the light of Jesus Christ. And in order to have an understanding of the book of Hebrews, you must have a working knowledge of the Old Testament because it's a New Testament commentary on the Old Testament. So it's referring a lot to the Old Testament things. Remember the audience is the Hebrew people and it's trying to explain to the Hebrew people how Jesus Christ was pictured all throughout the Old Testament to show that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of prophecy and that he was a surety of better promises. Now, one of the objections that a Hebrew person would have as they had set up uh, in the Old Testament, they had set up the Mosaic Law, and they had set up the tabernacle, and they had set up the priesthood through Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi, that they had set this all up, and there were certain things that the priest was supposed to do, and different activities, different things that were supposed to be done. The Levites were meant to be the teachers of the law to the people of Israel. And yet... As the New Testament is trying to build a case and trying to tell the Hebrew people, guess what? Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah, the wrong tribe, that Jesus Christ is the high priest. And for the normal Hebrew person who would be looking at things critically, who would be looking at things and saying it doesn't match up, they would say, listen, Jesus Christ cannot be the high priest. He's from the wrong tribe. He doesn't fit in. He doesn't work this. He's not qualified here. And so the author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of Scripture, pulls back behind the curtain and reveals that God had been working plans the entire time. Now, with this, because it goes into a little bit more meat than a lot of people are used to, he had the author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had started in chapter 5 to start explain about the order of Melchizedek and the author of Hebrews, you can imagine if he's preaching behind a pulpit, he's so excited about his subject. He's so in love that, oh, I love the Bible. Let me tell you something about this wonderful thing about the Old Testament and how Jesus worked. And he's so excited in the middle of his message as he's waxing eloquent about who Melchizedek was. He watches the crowd kind of nod off, not really catching all of it, not having a heart for it. And so the preacher rears back and says, listen here, the reason why you find this so boring is because you're not obedient to the Bible. And he goes on and takes all of uh, the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 as a little parenthetical thought. He's going to get back to Melchizedek, but he takes time to say, listen here, you need to get back and obey the basics of the Word of God. That if you don't have a love to study more of God's Word, it's because you're not reading God's Word. And he goes in and says, you have to have the milk of the word. You have to go back to baby food and that you should be at a time where you're teaching others, but we're trying to get you to read your Bible. We're trying to get you to pray. And then he goes through and builds up another case as this morning saying, listen, God's word is perfect. In order for you to stay with me on this subject of Melchizedek, God is perfect. 
He cannot change. It is immutable that God can't lie. Let me tell you, in order for you to believe what I'm going to tell you, Hebrew people, the audience, let me tell you that God never changes. That means that God didn't have a backup plan. Some people are taught that, well, God made Adam and Eve and they messed everything up. So God had to come up with a backup plan to fix the mess that was started. But that's not true at all. God, who knew the end from the beginning, had before the foundation of the world considered Jesus Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That Jesus Christ dying on the cross was never plan B. It was always the plan. Now, what he does is he reveals back to the curtain and says, guess what? I did it again. I had a plan that was in place before there even was a Levi. And I want to tell you that I had a plan setting in face that was a secret in the Bible that, guess what? I already had it set up. I already had the groundwork set up. I already had it put there. And guess what? I referred to it a couple times in the Bible. And now that it's here, let me tell you. So what we're talking about is a subject that's not a opinion. It's not something that is now we're trying to catch up and backlog and backstory and backstop it so that way it makes sense. In fact, it's the other way around. He says, take your Bibles to the book of Genesis. And let me show you some things about the book of Genesis. And by the way, let's take a pit stop in the book of Psalms. And let me show you in the book of Psalms. And I'm going to put a case here to show you that Jesus Christ was not a backup plan. And the, the Mosaic law and the institute of the Levites and the priest was, not, uh, was just a placeholder. I had something in mind the whole time. And so with that in mind, as we're building this up and said, anytime that we could take something from here and take it from here and tie the knot and put it together and show how the scripture go, flows all the way through, I love it. I love it. And so I hope you do too, as now the author of the book of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes back to the original subject and says, now I've woken you up. Now that I've got your attention, now that you have had some prep time, this is such an important subject. I want you to be paying attention to me. Let's go back into it now. And so with that, let's examine the order of Melchizedek through Hebrews chapter number 7. And let's see as he opens the pages of scripture and reveals back God's plan the entire time. The first thing I want to do is tell you about the person of Melchizedek. The person of of Melchizedek. Now we're talking about the order of Melchizedek and the reason why we could refer to it as the order of Melchizedek is because there was an historical Melchizedek. There was a real person by the name of Melchizedek. So if you ever think that you need a name for a new child that you have, here's one. You say, how do I spell it? Well, you can look in the New Testament and find a different spelling than you can in the Old Testament. That's neither here nor there, but you say, how do you spell it? Good luck. Good. So we come to the person of Melchizedek who was an historical person. Who was this Melchizedek? Well, we know that the historical reference for your information is found in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. But notice as we now refer to this in Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings 
and blessed him. So here we set up the scene. What is the scene? Well, remember that Lot had a good for nothing nephew who decided he was going to live in the evil town of Sodom and Gomorrah. And while he was living there, a bunch of kings, five kings of the plains, decided they were going to come and rob the cities. They were going to take everything and they took Lot and his family and his possessions as well as everyone else's. And they took off. Well, Abraham said, well, I'm not going to wait for everyone else. So just Abraham and his own men tracked them down, defeated their entire army, and brought everyone back without a hostage being killed. That Abraham's men were something. And of course, they were blessed of God. So as they come back, they're met by Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is the king of Salem. If you are trace this city throughout history, we now know this as the city of Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is the city is the king of of Jerusalem, which, by the way, Salem is the Hebrew word for peace. This is why it's said in verse 2. To whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being interpretation, king of righteousness, after that also the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. So he meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. He's also referred to as the king of righteousness. He is also the priest of the Most High God. So here is Melchizedek in his office who has a rare dual purpose. He is both priest and king at the same time. That was something that was not allowed within the Levitical system. That according to prophecy, the kings came from the tribe of Judah. Where the priests came from a different tribe, the tribe of Levi. And those would never supposed to meet. In fact, there was one king who decided he was going to take upon himself to do the office of a priest. And even though he was a good king for most of his reign, because he tried to take the office of the priest that was not his to take, God gave him leprosy. So God was very serious about this, that inside of the Mosaic system, the Levitical system, that the king was going to be separate from the Levites. However, this Melchizedek was both priest and king at the same time. That's important because Jesus Christ's roles is priest and king. He's from the order of Melchizedek. But going back to historical Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High. He serves God, that's one of God's name, the most high God. And Abraham comes back, and because God had blessed Abraham, protected Abraham, and allowed Abraham to come back with everything, and it didn't cost him anything, he gained all this stuff, Abraham then decided he was going to worship the Lord. Now, back in those days, they did not have temples, nor did they have churches. However, Abraham was establishing a principle of worship by giving from his increase 10%. That's what a tithe is. And because the tithe is such an important to this story, we have to make sure that you have an understanding of a tithe. A tithe is 10% of your income. So let's say that you go to work and you earn $100. 
a 10% of that is supposed to go to the Lord. It is not yours. It already belongs to the Lord. You bring the tithes into the storehouse. And the tithe is meant to be a way to worship God. Well, how do we worship God? By giving him substance, by giving him money. Well, first of all, it is to thank the Lord for how he has taken care of you in the past. And by faith, you are worshiping him with the expectation he is going to continue to take care of you. And so this, when we have a worship time, we have a worship time of collecting the offering. The way that we do things here at this church is we encourage people not to speak. We want them to reflect upon God's word, to reflect upon God, to hear the music being played, and to think about God as we worship God, as we honor God with our substance, with our tithes and offerings. This was before the law, by the way. Abraham is leading the way. This is such a big concept for this story that he worships God through his tithes and offerings, and gives them to the king of Salem. Now notice in verse number 3, as it talks more about this person of Melchizedek, we know that he is already prophet, or he is already priest and king at the same time. He is, by interpretation, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, and the priest of the Most High. But notice in verse number 3, as it gives more information, without father. So it's talking about Melchizedek. That it's talking about in the lineage of history, he had no lineage. He had no father and he had no mother. Well, we know that the Bible keeps pretty good records. We know that Abraham had a father. His name was Terah. We know that Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. And so we could find lineages of people. But here is Melchizedek. As far as world history is concerned, as far as lineages, had no lineage. He had no father. And he had no mother. Without descent, once again, this is talking about no lineage. There was no marketed lineage where he came from. His father was this and his father was this. Having neither beginning of days, there was no recorded things of when Melchizedek came on the scene. It was just, he was on the scene. Nor end of life, there was no recording of when Melchizedek died. There was no funeral service, no, nothing that was recorded within history but was made unto the Son of God, albeit a priest continually. Now, what this is doing is setting up the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus Christ is following Melchizedek's thing. That Jesus Christ was without lineage. Now, we know that he had an earthly parent, but Jesus Christ did not begin at Bethlehem. He was God from the beginning of the world, from everlasting to everlasting. All that happened in Bethlehem is he robed himself in flesh. He was God who robed himself in flesh and was born in flesh to dwell among humans. But Jesus Christ, who is God, had no father, had no mother, had no lineage of descent. By the way, the king of Melchizedek had no birth. Jesus Christ, who was God, had no birth. During his birth, he robed himself in flesh, but he pre-existed before that time. And by the way, Melchizedek had no record of death. And by the way, Jesus Christ won't die either. So much to say that there are some Bible scholars who indeed say 
Melchizedek is Jesus Christ. One, something that we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, incarnate means to be in flesh. Pre-incarnate means before he came and lived on this earth in the flesh, he appeared several times in the Old Testament. Joshua saw a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Some of the... Uh, People in the Old Testament saw a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And many people believe this was Jesus Christ who robed himself in flesh for a tiny bit to be here. And that Jesus Christ was actually being worshipped by Abraham. Now, whether you want to take it that far, that's neither here nor there. But because of who Melchizedek is, there are many people who would lead credence that this is Jesus Christ showing up before the time of Bethlehem. So, again, neither here nor there. You ask, what's your opinion, preacher? My opinion is that this was Jesus Christ, that who was the king of Salem, and that you could easily follow the order of Melchizedek if that was you in the first place. Again, neither here nor there, but historically, it says there was no lineage, no record, nothing about who Melchizedek was. Now, this is building up. Notice in verse number four. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now, again, to the Gentile mind, that sentence doesn't have as much power. But to the Hebrew mind, one of the most important people in all of Hebrew history is Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And so the Hebrew people, they say, guess what? Our father, that's Abraham. That's him. There's almost nobody greater than Abraham. You got Moses who's right there. You got Abraham right there. He's one of the greatest in all of our history. He was referred to as the friend of God. There was no one greater. And so going to the Hebrew mind saying, as great as he, uh, Abraham was, he gave his tithes in worship to someone greater than him, which was God. But he gave it through uh, Melchizedek. And so this is building a case that as great as Abraham was, he humbled himself and worshiped God and gave his tithes through it. Verse number five, And verily they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take the tithes of the people according to the law that is of their brethren, and they came out of the loins of Abraham. Now here it talks about the Levitical law. Why do the Levites need a tithe anyways? Does God need your money? The answer is no. We give out of worship to him. However, God has designed the way the tithes work is that this is how he operates his local house. So how did the temple run? By the voluntary giving out of worship to God of the tithes. The same things apply to this house, to the local church. How is the local church supplied? We don't get money by a, through the government. We don't get it supplied by another church. It is only by the voluntary giving of people out of worship to God that God uses that 10% that people choose to give and blesses it and uses it to operate this church. 
The same thing for the Levites during the time. They used the tithes of the people to feed themselves. They used the tithes of the thing to operate and run, to get the oil, to get the stuff, to continue to do what they were supposed to do. Later on during the synagogue's time, when they had gave the tithes, it helped operate that local synagogue, that local teaching center, so the people could teach the word of God. It helped fund it so there could be people. Remember, they didn't have printing presses. They actually had people who would have to write out the word of God. Well, they had people that had to do that, so they needed to be funded somehow. And so the tithes were used to take care of that. Does that make sense? So God doesn't need your money, but he has chosen to use that money you give out of worship to him to operate his local centers. Why? Because of the golden rule. You know what the golden rule is. He that has the gold makes the rules. And so the Bible says that the... uh, (coughs) The borrower is servant to the lender. And so if God supplies his house, guess who's the boss? He is. My job and our job as the church is to please him. Now, if someone else was supplying this church, we would feel obligated to give them a voice of how this church is operated. For example, once the government gets involved in anything, if they give you money, they also feel like they have a say. Of how things operate. He that has the gold. Makes the rules. So God has designed it. So therefore we're dependent on God. And God gives us direction. Because he's the one that has the gold. He's the one we're depending on. He makes the rules. Does that make sense? Isn't that a smart God to design it that way? To be able to supply and to take care of his house. By the voluntary giving of his people. And that is used to take care of the day to day operations of that institution? Absolutely. What a great God. But we're not even getting to the good stuff yet. So the Levites, they had to receive the tithes. And so the people tithed and the Levites used it. But then it does a semantic thing. But guess what? Guess where the Levites were? They were a twinkle in Abraham's eye. So you had Abraham who had Isaac, Isaac who had Jacob, Jacob who had 12 sons, one of them was Levi, and their great-grandpa was Abraham. And so it's building a case that technically the Levites, through Abraham, worship Melchizedek too. So guess who is higher than their priesthood? Melchizedek. Now it's building a semantic case, but it is an important case, that before the Levite priesthood was... All of that priesthood was was already practiced through Melchizedek. It's building that God had this already in motion, in plan, in scripture. And that it wasn't just when Jesus became uh, God. Now we have to explain how he has this role. God had already had it set in motion beforehand. Notice as it goes on. Uh, Verse number six, but he whose descent is not counted from them that received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises and without all contradiction, the less meaning the Levites is blessed of the better, which is Abraham. So as Abraham worshiped God by giving his tithes to Melchizedek, Melchizedek turned around and blessed Abraham. And now, because of the blessings that had went upon Abraham, as well as other blessings that God had already given to him, the Levites were now partakers, answers to that prayer of the blessings 
that was received to them. Does it make sense? All right. So it's without contradiction. It's trying to build a case that the Levites were secondary. And all the time before, the Levites thought they were the greatest. Notice as it goes on. Verse 8. And here men that die receive tithes. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. Now again, people use this verse to bounce it back that Melchizedek was Jesus Christ. So you take a high priest. All right, the first high priest was Aaron. He died. So now we had a new high priest, Eleazar. And guess what? He died. And the next was Phineas, And he died. And so on and so forth it went. So the high priest, he could receive the tithes, but the problem is he dies. But when we worship the Lord, and as the high priest, he doesn't die. He doesn't die. That's something better. I'd rather worship something that doesn't die. I'd rather donate and give to worship to someone who doesn't die. Amen. All right, now notice it goes on, verse number nine. As I may say, so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham. Once again, it's writing a semantic line saying, guess what? The tithes were given to the Levites, but guess what? The Levites technically already tithed through Abraham as they gave tithes to Melchizedek. Verse number 10, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, we start off by talking about the historical person of Melchizedek. And we build a case and we take some time drawing the lines and trying to say Melchizedek already existed. Now, let's go to a second thing as we build upon this. Not only the person of Melchizedek, but then we talk about the priesthood of Jesus. The priesthood of Jesus. Now, stay with me. You're doing good. Notice with me in the priesthood of Jesus. Let's start in verse number 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest that should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now, here it builds a case. If the, the Levitical law was so great, why do we need something else? Well, you know what the Levitical law promises. The Bible gives us what we call the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not. And guess what? Anytime you break one of those laws, you have sinned. And the Bible says under the law, for the wages of sin is death. For breaking any one of those laws, you require to die. The Levitical system is not a system of hope. It is a system that says you missed perfection. You need hope. In fact, next to the Ten Commandments, you could write in big boxcar letters, I need Jesus. Because you cannot live the Ten Commandments on your own. You absolutely cannot. What the Ten Commandments do is tell you that you're a failure and that your only hope is something other than you because you cannot do it. I need Jesus. So it ties in the Levitical priesthood as part of that Mosaic law. Now remember, it's talking to Hebrew Christians here. So Hebrew people have come to the place where they've accepted Jesus as their Savior. And so it's building a case that you can't keep part of the Mosaic system and replace part of it and keep part of it. 
If it needed to be replaced, then it needs to be replaced completely. And so the Levitical priesthood is not an option anymore. Notice as it goes on. Verse number 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man give attendance to the altar. So it's talking about that if it can't be the Levites no more, then it needs to go to something other than the Levites. As it builds verse number 14. For it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Speaking about that Jesus did not come from the Levitical tribe. He came from the tribe of Judah. Of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. Meaning the tribe of Judah wasn't supposed to touch the priesthood. That was given to the Levites. Verse number 15. And yet it is far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arise another priest. Meaning, after the same likeness, after the same type, we, there, Jesus Christ came from the type of Melchizedek, not from the Levitical system. Verse number 16. Who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. So here it's talking about Jesus Christ, that it's saying, here is someone after the Try, uh, the person of Melchizedek who had no father, had no mother, had no beginning and had no end, that Jesus Christ is going to step in that role and he has an endless life. He is not going to die forevermore. Verse 17, for he testified, thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now verse 17 is crucial. It starts off by talking Genesis and it begins to build up that in the book of Genesis there is a man who almost is forgotten by, by uh, Hebrew history. They like to focus on Abraham and all his exploits. They talk about Mo Moses and then they talk about the prophets. But before all of that there was a man by the name of Melchizedek. And it's something that you kind of teach through Genesis history. The Hebrew people would talk about Genesis, hit Melchizedek and move on. But all of a sudden in the book of Psalms, Psalm, um, <laughs> excuse me, Psalm 110 and verse number four, an obscure reference talking about that God is going to bring up someone after the order of Melchizedek. What this is, is that it's not a New Testament trick. Again, I'm speaking to the idea of a Hebrew audience that this isn't a trick. This isn't a backstory. Look. God had this in mind the whole time and he dropped a hint saying, guess what I'm going to do? In the middle of this, probably about King David's reign, God uses David to give a prophecy about Jesus Christ not coming after the Levitical order, but becoming a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, what God is doing is pulling back the curtain and say, ta-da! See, I had this all in the background the whole time. Isn't that a wise God that he had the seeds placed and that you could now draw a line from here to here to here that before people just saw dots and they didn't know how they lined up. And God now takes his pen and says, trace with me, dot to dot to dot. Look, we get from Melchizedek, go through Abraham, see the Levitical thing, see uh, this thing in Psalms, and now we draw it straight to Jesus. We have a line that connects the whole thing. And it was never seen before. Isn't that a wise God who knew what he was doing the whole time? That Jesus was not a backup plan. He was always the plan. Notice as it goes on in verse number 18. 
For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Now, in just a short amount of time, the, during this time of Hebrews, the, the temple that Jesus had walked in, the temple as still standing. But in a very short few years, in 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed by the Roman um, general Titus, who is later going to become a Roman emperor. And he's going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the temple. And from 70 AD to current times, the Hebrew people do not have a temple to worship. This is what the Hebrew people's great uh, desire is, is to have a temple rebuilt back so they can continue their ancestral worship in the Levitical system, in the Mosaic system. Well, God, who knew the end from the beginning, knew that this system was fixing to come to a screeching halt. And now for the Hebrew people, their worship is paused. They cannot worship God the way they want to without a temple. But again, because God knew what was going to happen, he's already laying the groundwork and saying, we have something better than that. We have Jesus Christ. I've already had this set up. And that you don't have to go give sacrifices to the temple. You don't have to go to the temple once a year. You could go straight to Jesus. Because he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's building this case up. Now notice this in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. That's what we said before. All the law told you is that you were broken. It did not make you perfect. It did not fix you. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. What was the better hope? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, we have hope. Before, all I could do is say, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. But now because of Jesus Christ, I have hope. That Jesus Christ promised me forgiveness of sins full, free, and forever for all that believe. I'd rather believe in Jesus than trust in my own works. I could trust in him. He did it all. It is completed. It is done. Oh, that is a better hope. But notice this. Bringing in of a better hope by the which we draw nigh unto God. With a Levitical system as it is practiced in formality, you could not get close to God. In that Levitical system. Now you could go outside the Levitical system. And have a personal relationship with God. Because God wanted that. But through the Levitical system itself. You could not. But now because of Jesus Christ. We could talk to God anytime. We could draw nigh to him. Isn't that a better system? Rather than keeping God afar off. We could go close to God. And he could draw nigh to us. Oh, that is so wonderful. Notice this in verse 20. And insomuch as not without an oath, he was made priest, that he is God, or that Jesus. Jesus was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath. Now, whose oath is he talking about? He's talking about that God made an oath in Psalm 110, verse 4, that he was going to make Jesus Christ out of the order of Melchizedek. So God made a promise, and now he's carrying out that promise. For those priests were made without an oath, but this was an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever 
by the order of Melchizedek. God had this in mind the whole time. Verse 22, as a summary of Jesus being the priest, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So Jesus Christ is the better priest. It is the better system. It is the better hope. Oh, thank Lord for what God has never do. Jesus Christ is the priest that will never stop, never get tired, never be rescinded, never be impeached, never be recalled. He is priest forevermore. Which now brings us to this. We started off with the person of Melchizedek. We brought it up to talking about the priesthood of Jesus. Now let's focus more on Jesus' actual priesthood and speak about the perfect priest. The perfect priest. Notice with me in verse number 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by the reason of death. So why, don't, why isn't Aaron still the priest? Because he died. What about Eleazar? He died. And so on and so forth. But Jesus Christ, why does he have a perfect priesthood? Because he doesn't die. He's alive forevermore. Verse number 24. But this man, because he continueth forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. By the way, we learned about that word unchangeable. It is the word immutable. There are two things that are immutable. God's counsel and God's character. That God's word cannot change and God cannot lie. So because of that, because Jesus cannot change, it is a priesthood that will not change. We know ourselves in our Constitution Republic, why we still have it, that when we get a different president, we don't know what we're in for. There could be radical changes from one to the other. There's a time of uncertainty. Even in the king system, you had Isaiah in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, holy, lifted up. Why is that phrase, in the King Uzziah died? Well, King Uzziah had reigned for 40-something years. He was the only king that most people had ever known. And now that he died, there was an uncertainty in all of the kingdom. And in the midst of that uncertainty, Isaiah looked at the Lord. Amen. He got his strength from God. But with Jesus Christ, because he never changes, we never have to worry about a change of command. We never have to worry about a different administration. We never have to worry about what this person is going to do and then what this person is going to do and how they're going to undo this and do this. We don't have to worry about that. Because Jesus Christ is priest forever with an unchangeable priesthood. It never needs updated. It never needs fixed. It never needs modified. Verse number 25, wherefore, so because he has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that cometh unto God by him. Because his priesthood does not change, his promises don't change. What is his promises? Come unto me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That if you call upon God, if you're a whosoever, that God promised you that you should not perish but have everlasting life. But if Jesus Christ wasn't always priest, what about the next guy? Could we carry the same coupons? 
Could we carry the same promises? Will he accept it? Will he say, you know what? It expired. It didn't work out. I'm so sorry you didn't make the cutoff. You're on your own. Because Jesus Christ never changes, his promise never changes. That whosoever will, will always be in effect. You know, there are some people that teach that there are certain times of history where people cannot get saved. But that's not what the Bible says. Anyone could get saved at any time. Jesus says, come unto me. At any time we could go unto him. Because of this, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Seeing he ever liveth to maketh intercession for them. This word intercession carries the idea of Jesus' priesthood. That Jesus' job is to go before God on our behalf. So imagine this scene. We come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to get to God, but I know I'm a sinner and I don't deserve to. But you made me a promise that you would allow me to see God. And Jesus said, I did. You accepted my promise. God, come. Let me introduce you to God. And he's able to bring us to God. And he's able to do it because he's an unchangeable priesthood. He's able to bring us. By the way, that also means he's praying for us. Did you know that Jesus prays for you? He's still praying for you. And he's always before God making intercession, bringing our prayers to him, praying for us, watching over us, letting us come to God because of this priesthood. Verse 26, for such a high priest became us who is, notice this, notice who this priest was, who is holy. The word holy carries the idea to be set apart for, uh, for God from the world under perfection. For God's use. Jesus is holy. Notice this. He is harmless. The word harmless here carries the idea of innocence. He's not harmed anyone. He is innocent of all charges. Notice this. Undefiled. That means that he's without sin. He's never sinned. He's never defiled. He never has to pay the payment of his own sin because there is no payment to be made. He is undefiled. Notice this. Separate from sinners. Separate from sinners. Meaning that he was not a sinner. He was God robed in flesh. He wore flesh, but he was not a sinner. And he never participated in sin. He never committed sin. He is separate from sinners. And made higher than the heavens. This is our priest. Our high priest. He is made higher than the heavens. He is God. You know the Bible talks about that God has to humble himself. Just to look at heaven. We're trying to get to heaven. But God is so perfect that he has to humble himself. Bring himself down just to look at heaven. That's how holy God is, how great God is, how high God is. Again, it's trying to give us from a human perspective for us to try to wrap our little feeble minds to try to see how big and great God is. He is higher than the heavens. Verse 27, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once. When he offered up himself. Jesus Christ did not have to pay for his own sins. And so his sinless sacrifice was enough to pay 
all of the sins for all the people who ever lived and ever would live for all time. Once and for all. Jesus Christ doesn't have to go to the cross continually. This is one of the reasons why we don't have Jesus pictured on the cross. Anytime a cross is pictured, it is always empty. Because Jesus is not continually suffering. It was a point action in time that had everlasting effects. It was enough. Verse 28. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath. Again going back to that promise that God made in Psalm 110.4. But the word of the oath which was since the law. Now notice that. Since the law. So we have the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek the person who was before the law. Then after the law in Psalms. Psalms is after uh, Exodus Leviticus right? Both in canon and in time, God reminded after the law, this oath, Jesus Christ, you're going to be made out of the order of Melchizedek. Notice this, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Jesus Christ is this perfect high priest. Now again, many chapters in the book of Hebrews is dedicated to this order of Melchizedek. And again, for Gentile people, it may not have as big as an impact. But for someone who grew up in Hebrew and grew up in the scriptures and grew up with the law, this is a big case that had to be built for them to understand that Jesus Christ is an acceptable person by God's order to become this high priest. That God did not break his law. He already had this in mind before the law and through the law and after the law. This was always God's plan. That all of this later on we're going to find in the next couple chapters. The Levitical priest, the tabernacle, the temple was all pictures to point to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see more about that later. But again for us, what does this affect to us? Well first of all, it's a reminder that God sees the end from the beginning. There are times, because our field of vision is limited, sometimes we feel like God can't see. Sometimes we pray to Him like He doesn't see what's around the corner. And we're trying to say, God, I don't know what's around the corner, and presumably you don't either, so you're going to have... God sees everything. He's able to lead us. He's able to take us by the hand. He's able to guide us because He sees it all. By the way, He also sees everything you've ever done. And everything you're going to do. And he still wants to use you. Amen. Now it's one thing for God to forgive my past. Which is already horrible. But to already see my future mistakes. And still want to use me. What a great God. Sometimes we beat ourselves up so much. Over what we've done. Or what we're going to do. And we feel like such failures. But God sees everything about us. And still says, guess what? I'm going to use you anyways. Isn't that encouraging? That God already has all this mapped up. He already has these plans. What a great God. An amazing God. He sees the end from the beginning. We have to remember that. Our field of vision may be limited, but his never is. We could also see that God is always working in the background. The Hebrew people had the scriptures. They ran the tabernacle. They ran the temple for centuries. For thousands of years. And even to this day they have the hope. 
But yet, with all of this practice, God said, ha ha, I had something already in the background. I already had it laid out. I already had this. There may be some things that we don't see, but God is already at work. God is already having things lined up. We can trust him. Sometimes again, we pray to him as if we're trying to convince him and twist his arm. God's already got things well in hand. We don't have to get him on board on our plan. We have to join with him with what he is already doing. God is always at work. God already has a plan. God already knows how that situation is going to get fixed before we even say anything. Our responsibility in prayer is to get on board with what God is already doing. God's that big of a God. Doesn't that change our vision of God just a bit? It should. God is always at work. No matter what situation you are going through, what you're fixing to go through, God already has it worked out. We just have to say, God, how do you want me to respond? What do you want me to do? You already have a plan of how you want this done. I don't want to get in the way of what you're doing. I want to work with you with what you're doing. God already knows what he's doing. We can trust him. Then also a good reminder that Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. He's paid everything for us. If you don't know Jesus Christ is your personal savior, let me tell you, Jesus has given a promise to you. Just come unto him. He will take you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Some people say, preacher, you don't know what a sinner I am. Yeah, I may not, but I know what a savior he is. Oh, he's able to take care of anything you've ever done. He's able to forgive it. He's able to set it aside. He loves you that much. You can go to him. You can trust him. And one last encouraging reminder, he's praying for you. With Jesus Christ praying for us and cheering for us, how can we fail? We are more than conquerors through our risen Lord. Oh, we could trust him. Let me tell you, don't make Jesus small. Keep him big. Keep him big. He sees the end from the beginning. He has plans and things working wondrously in our day that if he told us, we would say, nuh-uh. You don't believe me? That's a paraphrase from the book of Hebrews. God is always at work. He's already got plans. He's already got things. He's got things undercurrent. He's already moving the chessboard and putting the pieces in the right time. So as soon as you arrive, got there. Let me take a little segue. There are some of you who got saved later in life. And you say, well, man, if I, if I could have just got saved earlier, I could have done so much. Well, let's pause. Maybe there's someone that said, I went through this and I went through this. And it wasn't until recently that I got things cleared up in serving God. If I could have just served God earlier. Yes, that may be true. But you understand that I could have been a chess piece. That God placed me at this time for this thing for you to show up for you to be taught. Maybe there was someone, if I could have just got saved earlier, maybe you ended up in a spot that taught you the Bible incorrectly. And now you're stuck with that the rest of your life. God spared you from that. It could be that as you were going here and going here, that God had been working in your life so you would be teachable and then show up at this place. And now God says, now I've got you the right place. You understand? Those are just tiny examples. 
But God's moving things at the right time at the right place. Some of you know my testimony. Know that I pastored a church uh, for several years before coming here. You know, in my mind, it would have been nice to say, Hey, wouldn't it be nice just to bypass that and come straight here? But God had a plan. He had to prepare the church as well as preparing the man. So they were both ready at the right time. Now again, you could think of many other situations. God is always at work. God is already moving plans at the right time at the right place. Because he sees the end for the beginning. He has a better field of view. He sees it all. We just see a little bit. And whereas you may be praying and you're wondering, how come it's not being answered yet? How come it's not being answered yet? God says, wait patiently. I've already got things set up. Person here, a situation here, a car accident here, something here. And once they get there, they're ready. God knows what he's doing. That's why the ultimate form of worship is waiting. When I wait on God, I trust him. That he already is working he already has a plan. He already has things working. That my job is not to get in God's way, but to go with him with what he already has in mind to do. Again, that change of perspective will help you and the rest of your Christian life. You're not trying to convince God to work. We're just trying to get on board with what God is already doing. That should help you. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.